So if you missed last week, you missed an exciting one. Uh, it was, it was uh, George Whitfield. As we're moving towards the uh, First Great Awakening, um, what we're going to do, it's, it's already that time. I do apologize, man. I know we had those three weeks. <clears throat> I mean, we've missed, we've missed a few weeks this semester for different reasons, but that's just the way it goes, man. Um, so we will, we will, if you're willing, to come back in the springtime. My plan is tonight to, I wanted to do, no, you can't come Can in the springtime? No, that's week is. But, <laughs> um, what, I wanted to do Jonathan Edwards tonight and then kind of the Great Awakening as well, but, but it just wasn't going to work out. As a matter of fact, on your outline, you have um, an actual chart there for, that's for next week, but my intention was to try to do it tonight, but it was just too much. So tonight will probably be a shorter class, and then um, next week we'll, we'll just dig deep into the Great Awakening itself, talk about that, the implications, the context, uh, the results of all that. So that should be pretty cool too. And then we take our break, and that's the extended break. Now remember, a little commercial for Aaron Pratt. When Luke and I are on break, Aaron does his Bible study. He's in First Peter. That's at his house on, is that Wednesdays, guys? Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Who goes to his? That's good. All right, that's cool. So you guys will have that to supplement if you uh, want to be there. So, And I encourage that. I encourage that um, very much. Um, so... And that, that, keeps, that keeps things together even when we're off of that extended period. When we come back, the hope is to try to maybe talk a little bit about the, um, the context of religion during the Revolutionary War, maybe, but certainly the Second Great Awakening and then kind of into the modern era. I mean, we want to come all the way up to today uh, with, with uh, religion in America, church history, U.S. church history. So... That's the plan anyway, but for tonight, we are just going to do Jonathan Edwards, and we'll just see, um, get I wanted to do both, so tonight will probably be a little bit shorter, we'll see how that goes. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. I thank you for this group, for these people just taking their time, uh, time out to come here, Lord, to be together, to learn, and I just pray, I just pray, Lord, that we would be learning about church history, as we see your providential hand, your outworking, Lord, um, the gospel going forth, no matter the circumstance or the situation, no matter how faithful or unfaithful your church is during particular periods of time, Lord God, your gospel advances, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and so we give you thanks and praise. We know sometimes when it seems so chaotic and scattered, Lord God, that you are sovereignly in control, and it is part of um, your, your purpose and your decree, Lord, that is being worked out. So we have confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. So we pray, Lord, uh, for a good class tonight, that we learn more about the history, just to be amazed by it, to see the consistency, but also, Lord, to, to look at the, um, the warnings there for us, that we wouldn't repeat so many of the same mistakes that uh, the church has made over the years, Lord. So please bless this time for our good and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we talked all about Whitfield as we're moving towards a great awakening. Today we want to talk about Jonathan Edwards. Um, and Edwards is, by so many 
theologians account the greatest American theologian ever. Um, if you talk to like R.C. Sproul, well, you can't talk to him right now, but his <laughs> opinion, John Gerstner, Sproul's mentor, uh, many others down the line. I mean, kind of Edwards, that premier um, American born theologian, and he was deep, very deep, very intelligent. I'll talk a little bit about that towards the end on, on Edwards. Um, he was always really hard for me. I don't know, Tony, if you read him. Stephen Nichols has a good series on him. Does he have a good yeah, series? Yeah, and I, and I watch Godfrey's series on him, too. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's some things with Edwards that just were pretty tough for me and even to read. But anyway, we'll talk more about that later. But um, the Lord used him mightily, especially during the time of the Great Awakening. We'll see more of that next week. Edwards was born in 1703. His father was a Puritan minister, and he was a strict Puritan minister. He was a solid uh, pastor and teacher. Uh, his grandfather was none other than Solomon. Solomon. Oh, Tony, you know this stuff. Who was it? Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard. Do you remember good old Solomon Stoddard? Does that name ring a bell to any of you at this particular time? We talked about him about a month ago. Remember, he was, he was the, the Puritan pastor in Northampton. He was there for, I think they called him the Pope of Northampton, Stop. something like that. Uh, he was there for a long, long time. But what's really important about Solomon Stoddard was, like, this is where the downgrade started to happen, at least one of the areas with the Puritan movement, is uh, Solomon Stoddard was a strong proponent of and, and really kind of behind the push of that covenant we talked about? Remember that halfway covenant? Yeah, that's a tough one. We talked a lot about that. Um, but he, he really was a proponent of that. And so that really, I, we talked about the implications of that in the church. Um, where those kids could be considered, uh, the kids of non, uh, baptized members, but non-communicative members could be baptized. So you're having people that don't have a, a profession of faith that are still in the church whose kids are being baptized in the church. So that's, that was tough. Halfway Covenant did a lot of damage, I think, to, to the whole uh, Protestant, Puritan, Protestant theology and idea. He also, what else did he believe about the Lord's Supper? Do you guys remember Solomon Stoddard? What did he believe about the Lord's Table Communion? If you remember real quick. Open to all. Open to all, yes. But... Even more hideous than that. Well, that's not necessarily hideous. I shouldn't say that. The problem was this. I shouldn't say hideous. It wasn't hideous. It's just me. Um, dude, listen, I came from a church that was basically basically closed communion. So that meant only that congregation, only members of your congregation. So only members of Redeemer Church of South Hills. I mean members, not just attendees, just members. Can partake. So if you're visiting from another, you could be a full-fledged Christian visiting from another church, you wouldn't necessarily be allowed to commune unless you were interviewed and go through a process. That's, I mean, that, that was closed communion. Open communion is come one, come all. Uh, but with Solomon Stoddard, the thing about him, he believed and he taught that communion was a converting ordinance. In other words, that people could learn about the gospel from that. It was, for us, it's for believers. Okay, You come as a believer to the table, 
and, and everything we talk about, everything that the Lord's Supper entails. For Solomon's daughter, for unbelievers, it could be a way of bringing people into the kingdom. So that was a warped view of, not a biblical view of the Lord's Supper at all. It's a, it's a, it's a converting ordinance. Um, so anyway, that's Solomon. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is his grandson. And again, he's considered to be the greatest American theologian. He was exceedingly intelligent. He had a great appreciation for the natural sciences, the natural world. What's up, my man? Um, and philosophy as well. Uh, at the age of, I think it was around 20 years old, he wrote a paper or a letter on, or maybe even younger, I forget what age he was, but he wrote this, he was observing spiders, and certain spiders looked like they were like flying, they weren't really flying, but he, he did this whole proposal or theory on flying spiders, and it was read by some prominent um, science magazine, or published in his prominent science magazine, something to that effect, but he was fascinated by that. As a young dude, as a young man, as a young guy, he did not like the doctrine of God's sovereignty or God's sovereign election, of course. Um, again, much more interested in science. He wrote this. Like, these guys were great. They kept their journals. They, Lainey, you're going to be fantastic. We're going to know everything about your life. That kid keeps journals. From how, how old were you when you started? 13. 13. Every day? Since you're 13. You're 27? 20. No. You're not now, uh, <laughs> so from 13, almost every day, she has her journals. I mean, every day, things have happened. I can't wait to someday, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> but anyway, that's, she reminds me of the purity. This is what these dudes, this is what these guys did. Every day, they wrote their journals, their deepest thoughts, spiritual learning. That's why we know so much about them, because we have so much uh, information, a lot of it firsthand, obviously, from, from their own journals. So we know a lot about them. But anyway, he wrote this about the doctrine of election and sovereignty. He said, quote, from childhood, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Unquote. Um, spoken as a true unbeliever. <laughs> He's, uh, he did not, he didn't reject God. You know, he was a PK, a typical PK, right? You know, here in the church, he, he just he just he didn't he just didn't know him. He wasn't regenerate. Um, he was he was a pastor's kid. Seventeen, sixteen, at the age of thirteen, again he was very very intelligent, smart kid. He was accepted at Yale. Does anybody want to take a guess why he went to Yale um, University? You got it, Tommy. See, that's what happens when you're dealing with another historian. Harvard. Um, which is the first Harvard by this time it was founded um, by the Puritans and it was to teach young men especially um, not exclusively but to prepare them for the ministry we talked a lot, a lot about this it's in your notes so if you have your little outlines at some point you go back and this is Harvard um, but by this time the downgrade had begun at Harvard, so the Calvinists said, you know what, we're just going to start another one and be consistent until this one went, <laughs> and then the next one, the next one, Princeton went down the line to where we are today, Brown, Colgate, I mean, you, you name it. Um, so, and here we are. And that's the thing, it's so bothersome because, and we've talked about this before, it's just so frustrating, that for the most part, by and large, it's the Christians, the Christian ethic, the Christian worldview, that we found all the, we're, 
the, the founders of these kinds of things, higher education, higher learning, um, hospitals, medical, all kinds of everything in that way. And what happens? The, the parasites come along and kind of take over and, and usurp. So if you go to Harvard today, uh, or is it Princeton or Harvard? Who, who's the, uh, the, lead, the, the uh, chaplain, the head chaplain? is an atheist. <laughs> so, loving atheist, right? It's just like totally upside down. It's just such a shame. So even when you think about like the hospitals that were really founded to really help people create in God's image to, to, to restore, to comfort, to care. And now it's like big business and, you know, coal and, yes. Do you think that Christian charity and, you know, the, the pressure to not come off as judgmental is uh, a lot of the reason why we seem to like sh- shirk off discernment as a legitimate gift. I think, well, and that's a big deal about discernment. That's a whole topic in and of itself. But I think that's it, Chad. I mean, we always want to seem like, very, be very charitable and gracious. There's always mixed motives. But that's how we end up losing the, the institutions, you know, because we don't take that stand. We're always capitulating. We always give in and just a little here. We know what the truth is. There are those who discerned, and there were those who fought for Harvard and Yale, but the majority comes, comes along, and then there's also money involved. There's all kinds of different motives, and I think that we're, we always we seem to be the ones that kind of go along to get along, capitulate. It's hard to keep this up all the time, consistency. So it's enough like if, if organizations just are charitable and help and churches go out and give food, but without the gospel. That's what happened to many liberal churches. It just gets easier. It gets hard to fight the good fight and to stand strong. Even right now, I think one of the colleges, I think it's still standing strong, and one of the denominations and seminaries is the one that I was part of, the Reformed Presbyterians. Uh, not many people know about the Reformed Presbyterians. They're small because they haven't compromised and they've, they've stuck to the truth and they are Calvinists and their institutions are... I was on the board um, at Geneva College as a, as, as a pastor. As, I forget what board it was. But at that time, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, they wanted to bring in more liberal teachers in the Bible department. But the denomination saying, uh, no, the, the board of... What's the main board? Trustees. The trustees say no, no, we're not going to, we're not going to compromise there because they're, you know, they want to get the grants, they want to be accredited for the longest time. Our seminary, the RPTS seminary, was not accredited, but it was turning out fine pastors because the professors were solid and biblical. They went ahead and got accredited, and then you get to that trap of like having to capitulate or do certain things or they're going to pull your funding or you're going to be reported. It's, it's a really tough place, those, those things that come about in that way. But I think a lot of it's where we refuse to stand our ground and be discerning and say no. That's my... Keep going back to prayer and study to get another vote until eventually they have a majority and you're the one leader. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're the one and that's exactly what happens. Right down the line all the time in every single area. Politics too, everywhere. Um, politics not as much, but very few Christians last. I had, again, in Kansas, um, one of our elders, not in our church, but a, a sister church, um, he was in the Kansas State Senate, and he, after his term, he didn't run again. It was just too much. He was, it was so slimy. It was so hard, and he wanted to fight the good fight, but 
for his principles. I mean, this guy was biblical. And what was that guy's name in Winchester Laney? I forget his name now. But he was good. Um, but then he, he didn't run for another term because it was just too much. There was too much pressure, too much corruption. And so do you stay in and fight? Or do you... So that it's... it's but that's the nature of evil. And it's always, always... Like that race car track. It's always going to the left. Always going to the left. Always going to the left. We have to resist that. I digressed. Okay. <laughs> Back to it. Um, he, at age 13, he was that... He went to Yale. Harvard had gone liberal or was going liberal. Yale was the Calvinist answer to the downgrade. Um, he was converted while he was at college. And he explained it. And again, this is one of the things about... Edwards is just kind of confusing to me a little. I never really related well to him personally, so this is kind of my personal bias coming in, but I'm not alone. Um, again, top, maybe he was too smart, one of those people. It's hard to relate, but even how he explained his conversion, um, he explained it by being overwhelmed by the glory of God in nature, not God in like, you know, general kind of revelation, that God is the God of all of this. And that blew him away. He knew the theology, like from his dad. He understood about the need to be born again and regeneration. But when he actually, and this is like kind of the natural science part of him coming out, just being overwhelmed by God's creation, and that, to him, really <clears throat> brought him to the Lord as it were. So like in, in Psalm 8, um, David says this, um, O Lord, our Lord, how, majest how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? And then the psalm goes on to talk about being made a little lower than the angels, but, but he just was overwhelmed by um, natural, general revelation. He had special revelation. Usually it's the other way around. People are, you know, they think about God, they know him from general revelation, then it's special revelation, the scripture, the word being preached, that brings you to conversion. But um, for him, he saw the, the complexity the, of, of God in nature, the precision, the beauty, uh, the functionality, the goodness of God, the power of God, all of this. And that really made an impression on him in, in that way that, that brought him uh, to the Lord, you know, still still knowing what he did. He was kind of overwhelmed by that, just by God's... And we are too. When you think about creation, just the way God, how amazing, how beautiful, how wonderful, how powerful, exceedingly gracious he is and good when you think about everything that we have. And it's not just functional. We could be functional. He makes it beautiful as well, right? So we have the trees and, and everything they do for oxygen, everything that we need, right, to live, but they're so beautiful too and majestic and we can appreciate them. Just like with, I always use the nursery, the baby nursery. Like you love your kids so much. You could have a functional room. You could set a crib in there and have a cement floor and bare walls, but right? No, you want that room to be beautiful as well, right? So, so there's that, that majesty too, that, that beauty. That's the heart of the Lord. So for Edwards, 
Um, Chad's like, nah, we just have a cement floor in us. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> what does a kid know anyway? Right? Uh, fruits and vegetables, the same thing. They're so good. We need them, but they're so beautiful too, right? As you walk into, it doesn't matter. If you go, even a giant eagle on a good day and you have the produce or something, you just, oh man, so good. Right? So that's the glory of God. My friend and I, God Lord, when we were in San Diego, we used to go to, uh, um, what's the island where the jets fly? Coronado. Coronado Beach. And, and sometimes we just go at night or like at, at dusk, Mr. Lord, and, and we would just like be in awe because you know the sun is going down here, there was a mountain over there, or like a cliff, and then the ocean, and then the stars, and we would just be, we would be in awe of God's majesty, and His glory, and His goodness. And Don used to always say, if you wanted to, all we would have to do is say, be still, and that ocean would stop coming in. You know what I mean? Just overwhelming in some ways. I think that's what Edwards was like, Man, that 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 the glorious nature of God in that way. However, when he talked to his daddy about this, he talked to his father. His father wasn't convinced by the story that you know, or by his testimony. He didn't believe this to be an adequate testimony, right? He's, his dad didn't allow him to join the church because at that time he wasn't crushed by the law and then brought up by you know brought up the gospel it's like that I love the nature that that was cool because <laughs> I don't know I might have issues with that you know what I mean as a Christian we really appreciate the, the beauty and majesty precision of God's good creation but to say that that's kind of converting I, I don't know man There's, so hey, I, I can see where his dad's coming from I, I really admire the dad at this point for saying sorry son can't, can't do that um so he didn't let him join the church at that point. However, a couple years after that, 1721, uh, Edwards did come to, quote, a delightful conviction as he was meditating on uh, 1 Timothy 1.17. And it's just kind of a doxology in uh, 1 Timothy. He says this, uh, 1 Timothy 1, and I think it's, yeah, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Now, we just kind of read over that. These guys would meditate on that like all day long or even longer than that. So <clears throat> as he was meditating on that, he, came, he became convinced of um, his need for Christ. As a matter of fact, I will read that since we do have time tonight. Um, <clears throat> he was meditating on 1 Timothy 1.17 and he remarked, as I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I've ever experienced before. <coughs> Excuse me. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of scripture to myself, and I went to prayer, to pray to God that I might enjoy him, and I prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do, with a new sort of affection. So really, that's, he came to the Lord, that's kind of his conversion at, at that point, 1721. 1726, a few years later, he becomes the assistant pastor. I just ask you where, guess where, maybe? 
<clears throat> North Anthony. He went to his uncle, or his, uh, let's say, granddaddy's church. And he was the assistant pastor there, uh, good old Solomon Stoddard. So he was there as his assistant. On February 15th in 1727, he was ordained by the church. We had ordination in our church not too long ago of our two elders. We have our first official session meeting on Tuesday night, so that's going to be exciting. Although we're meeting tomorrow morning for breakfast. I don't know what we're going to say on Tuesday, but uh, <laughs> we're trying to get together Friday mornings like at 7 down at some little juke joint dive diner. Is that diner in 51? Not Tom's, dude. It's right on 51. Is that? Frank and Shirley's? We go there every week. Frank and Shirley's. Yeah, they know. It's a little greasy pit. Grease pit is good. Um, Tom's, yeah. So we, uh, so he was ordained on, on, in, in 1727, and then uh, February, in July, he marries a 17-year-old named Sarah Pierpont. Um, he met her when she was 13. I think, how much older he was than she was. was he? he was born in 1703. Yeah, so he wasn't that much. But, but um, her father was a pastor and also kind of a co-founder of Yale. A very strong Calvinist Puritan. Um, now... Sarah, so you, you'll hear about Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Um, the last couple of weeks we've talked about marriages that weren't very great, and that's kind of, you know, blah. This is the exception. This is the exception. Um, she had a very, very, very deep spiritual devotion to Christ, a very vibrant, vibrant faith. So they matched each other, you know, in their faith, and they... Yes, and there was just that deep connection. So you're in love, you know, physically in those cute ways, but also spiritually, man. And that's that's so good, you know. She she was a, a very 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 strong encouragement uh, towards Jonathan. By all accounts, they had a strong, good, vibrant marriage. Um, she 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 was said to have to be just very bright. Godly, a cheerful disposition, very, very hospitable. Um, even if he was away, uh, she, she would kind of host the, the guest ministers who were preaching at the church. And they just, she was, but if you read whatever you read, very delightful in many, many ways. Um, they, they raised 11 children and they did it together. And Chad's like, no <laughs> That's you, Chad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and he was very involved. Um, um, the key was he he taught them education was important to them. So so he was very. They were both very much involved in their education, but especially Jonathan. He he would do devotions with them every morning and every evening. They had like family devotions. So that that was something that was just part of who they were. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love that? Don't you? Uh, only um, well, yeah, but but they did it together. Devotions every single night, like that. Devotions every single we, dude. We did that for how long do you guys think when we were in Kansas, Laney? Our family did these a few years, four or five years, almost every single night. We did our deeds. He had to have some callous dance because I know whenever you've got family devotions. 
Well, yeah, <laughs> we can talk about that too. But um, but but yeah, they, so they did it in that way. They just complemented each other. I still think it's the spiritual equality. Like when you're both on fire for the Lord and you both have a deep personal faith in Jesus Christ, and then you come together. It's just it just that's that's everything. So uh, the, the quote from a family friend about her says this, she had an excellent way of governing her children, governing her children. She knew how to make them obey her cheerfully. She seldom punished them and spoke to them using gentle and pleasant words. Oh man, let me talk to her. We need to talk to her, man, before she was around, right? Um, George Whitfield said of them, a sweeter couple I have not yet seen. That's Whitfield what he said about them. Isn't that sweet? And I stayed happily married until she died. So, anyway, yeah. Uh, February uh, 1729, Solomon's daughter dies. And Jonathan Edwards is installed as the lead pastor, as the pastor of the church of Northampton. They had about 620 members at the time, so it was a big church. Um, what he was known for especially was his diligent, diligent study of the word. I'll just ask you, I don't know if I put it on your notes or not, guess how many hours a day he averaged just studying. I mean, everything that entails studying. 12, 13. 13 hours a day, was just, that's the average. 13 hours a day studying the, the Word. Again, um, educated, able to do that. Um, the church itself, you know, this was very well established. It was large, uh, one of the largest and wealthiest churches in all the colony, in the entire colony. But the members were proud a little bit. You know, they knew that they were good. They knew that they were big. I'm a little concerned about Solomon Stoddard's teaching. He would be, kind of be more on the liberal end of being a Puritan. You know, still doctrines of grace, but we talked about halfway covenant. We talked about that. Wealthy congregation, kind of proud. You've got to really watch out for that. They love their culture of the church. They love the morality of their church, so maybe a little legalistic. Uh, you can just see that kind of comfortable church a little bit. Hmm, we're Northampton, right? Wow. Yeah, very much. So you have to be careful. Now, Edwards comes in. In 1731, he begins to emphasize, through his preaching and his writing, the absolute sovereignty of God. The doctrine that he hated growing up, now he loves and he's teaching full force with all vigor. And he really was taking on um, the Arminians. He really had a strong stance against Arminianism. And he wasn't. So as he's preaching faithfully, guess what starts to happen within his own congregation? In 1733 and 34, partly... I mean, he, he, he loved his congregation. He was diligent in his study, diligent in his prayer, diligent in his preaching. He wasn't, um, his preaching was powerful, but a lot of times he would read his manuscripts and sometimes he would be, be shaky and, you know, he didn't have a strong voice uh, that, you know, really, really carried, that really went out like, like that. Um, but he was certainly an excellent preacher, teacher, and very, the Lord uses who he will. And he used him very, very effectively. So in, in 33, 34, a revival starts to take place in the church, especially among the youth. Those young people, man, those, you know, 16, 18 to 24 year olds, every important movement, even the Reformation, college campus, that's, you know, that's, the, it was the young 
for the most part, that really got behind Luther. Um, yeah, all, all, all the time. So positively or negatively? Now negatively we're being affected, and it's usually negative, but the other side, it's when the young people buy in is when you see that change start to happen, you know, and, and people come along in that way. It's just the way it seems to be, right? High school, college campuses, that's where um, so much happens, at least at, at that level. Within six months, about 300 young people joined the church. And what Ed, Edwards noted, it wasn't about the numbers for him, it was about the sincerity, it was about the seriousness, it was about the depth that they had, the concern they had to live holy and godly and righteous lives, the, the concern they had to learn and grow in their faith, the concern they had to tell others about Christ. That's amazing. To you know, that would be that's that is like revival. That's that's what you uh, pray for. It kind of spread throughout the congregation. Now, Edwards himself had been convinced in his own mind that God works through revivals primarily to advance the church. Now, he was great with the, with the church the way it is, the day in, day out, you know, the, the settled church, that's what it is. That's what we are. We're a settled church right now. And we preach it, we teach it. By God's grace, you're being equipped, we tell others, and that's kind of the normal way. But Edwards was more convinced that when the church went forward, when God was doing a work and bringing people in, it was revival that really grew the church, that, that got that church on fire and sustained it. And he has that through history. You can look Old and New Testament. Think of the book of Acts in history. Think of the Reformation, how that spreads, man. It's revival. People are on fire. You have you know, thousands of people, hundreds or thousands of people hearing the word and, and, and coming to the Lord and plugging in in churches and, and growing in that way. So I kind of agree with him to that extent. I see both and. I don't think they need to be, you know, obviously we have, the, we have our church and, and that's, that's the way we do it. And God works primarily through that. But man, when he does send revival and, it's, and people are true, like even if it's in the congregation and that congregation's on fire for the Lord, I mean truly, not... Emotions will be involved. We'll see that next week. But it's, it's a, the emotion that, that's drawn out because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. you know, it's not just being ginned up. The second great awakening, there was a lot of crazy emotionalism. We'll talk about that. Um, but the first great awakening was more genuine. Just like it did. sometimes when you just sing a certain hymn, you just start to cry. Or you hear a certain word, you just start to cry. You're just moved to the core of your being. Well, that's what was going on in his congregation. Um, so again, he's not against the, 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 the settled church, but he really thought that God worked prominently through revival, and that were true revivals. Um, he was also a, a very strong, staunch post-millennialist. You guys might like that. Chad, you might like that. <laughs> and and um, he really believed that as the gospel goes out to the world, more and more people come to Christ and it's kind of a rise and in, in fall, like, you know, you'll, you'll see people come to Christ and then kind of recedes a little bit. But then at one point you have that, you kind of reach that peak where it's just rising and people are being converted and really coming to the Lord. It's being sustained. And that's kind of the post-millennial's outlook is that the gospel is going out through the world and the world becomes you know, like Christianized in that way. And, and it's, it's sustained for a thousand years and looks forward to the return of Christ. And so that is 
that he was very strong. And so what was going on here, and then especially with the Great Awakening, Edward was thinking. Now, he wasn't saying, he never said, this is, you know, the millennium kingdoms coming in. He wasn't saying that, but could this be, you know? There was excitement there. And to, just to feel that, I mean, if people get excited in our church and some, just like little things that are happening in our own church, I'm like, yay, you know? Compared to this, it's nothing. But man, like, even when you see younger people really taking their faith seriously and people being excited to, to be at church and using their gifts, that's a good thing even now. But to see something like this where people were just sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ um, is amazing, would be amazing. So, never said it was, but could it be? 1735, the revival starts to spread beyond the congregation and it becomes regional. So it's other churches as well. Um, at this point, some other ministers were beginning to push back and say, you know, this looks like, like you're just enthusiasts. So, oh, you know, you're, you're not conservative now, and people are getting way out there. We need to rein this back in. We'll talk about uh, William Chauncey next time, at, at, and we talk about the uh, Great Awakening, but um, he wasn't without his critics. People were saying, you know, you have these people, you know, emotional in this way. Again, we're very, very conservative at that time, and, you know, didn't say, did what you did in church, but now... There's this enthusiasm, godly, and so some people start pushing back. But we'll talk more about that next time. Um, 1739, Edward meets Whitfield, and they become fast friends. Whitfield had so many friends, man. He knew everybody. Everybody knew him. Uh, from Ben Franklin to the Wesley Brothers, they, you know, everybody along the, in the colonies, they, they knew about Whitfield. Um, Edwards believed that he was the person needed to spread the message. Um, I don't want to say it like Edwards was the brains of the operation. I don't want to say it like that, but he was kind of that. He did. He was praying for this, organized as much as he could in that way. He did preach as well. God used him, but it was Whitfield who was that spark. Like he was the one that you know, went, and God used in a mighty way. Yeah, we talked about it last week. We'll talk about it next week as well. Um, but Edwards himself had been moved to tears through Whitfield's sermons. Again, just that, that preaching. Edwards mostly read his manuscripts, like I said. He spoke rather softly, yet he was still very effective. But he couldn't match Whitfield for preaching. Nobody could. I mean, he preached extemporaneously. He had that booming voice, that giftedness. He brought conviction. Uh, he just left people undone by God's grace. And so, uh, again, that's, that's part of the awakening. Um, five years after that, in like 1745, things began to quiet down with, uh, with the Great Awakening. And here's a, a turning point a little bit. Um, it's kind of coming off the high, I guess. You know what I mean? Things were going good there for a while. People were coming, excitement. Bonafide. These guys were concerned. The Second Great Awakening... There wasn't as much concern for doctrinal purity. These guys were still Calvinists. I mean, Whitfield was preaching election and, you know, true, sincere repentance, heaven and hell. Uh, he wasn't pulling any punches. Same with Edwards. None of these guys did that. So they were very concerned about true, true conversion and people being uh, brought to deeper faith and knowledge and understanding, all those kinds of things. Second Great Awakening, not so much. There's all kinds of splinter movements and... Strange, strange, strange people rolling yeah, around, yeah. barking like dogs. You know, we'll talk about that yeah, next time. Something that I came 
Oh yeah, oh so many. I, you're going to see all the streams that came out of that movement, and so many that are still around today. Um, but not the first Great Awakening. They 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 were they weren't just saying, "Oh, okay, raise your hand, pray a prayer." Oh, you're saved. There was there was examination. There was you know, making sure. But nevertheless, things started to quiet down. The passion, the some of the commitment, even some reverence started to wane, and that discouraged Edwards a lot. You can imagine that, of course. You know, you're from Friday high, man. People are coming to the Lord, you're loving, you're ministering, it's amazing. And now all of this, not all of a sudden, but in time, like anything else, just starts to settle again, settle down. Um, but I, it seems to really have hit Edwards hard and, and really brought discouragement. I'm not going to say depression, but certainly discouragement to him. And so not long after that, man, they love you one day and the next day. <laughs> when I've heard people say to me, I'll never leave this church, I just laugh because I'm like, okay, oh, we love you, Pastor Joe. Okay, that's good. Talk to me in five years. Um, it's usually like that. It, I mean, Kevin still does, I think. <laughs> you've, been, you've been here long enough, Andy, a couple of you guys. But, you know, it's a, that, that's that experience. You come in, there's a honeymoon period, right? And that can last for a couple of few years, but then you get to know each other or something doesn't go the way you think it should. Oh, dude, it gets tough. It gets really rough. I always say, like the Apostle Paul, um, when he said um, to, to the folks, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So, like what happened with like our, our Come and See Church, it really split over the end times, over the dispensationalist stuff. And I just kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm still saying what I said from day one. I haven't changed, right? So have, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth or you know, sticking to my story? But, you know, it happens. That's, that's the life of the ministry oftentimes. But anyway, um, and actually a negative perception developed towards him for different reasons. So, like, number one, his standards became increasingly and obsessively so high. So how many hours a day did he study on average? 13, 13 okay. Um, Edwards couldn't understand how other people couldn't do that as well or why they wouldn't be just like him. I mean, Calvin was kind of the same way. But, and I understand that to a degree. I mean, you're, just, you're in the Word. It's like, to me, it's like, I can't believe that Christians like, don't read their Bibles for three or four days or even longer than that. It's like, what? You don't, like, that, that doesn't seem like a high standard. Now, if you're 13 hours a day in the Word, that's, that's a little different, maybe. But that came across to, to some in the congregation because he had those, not just the expectations, but also the, I don't want to say disappointment. I think that's too strong of a word. But like, are you kidding me? You're a Christian and you're just, you're not in the Word. <laughs> what else are you doing in your life? You know? So I think that that kind of, uh, made it difficult on, on some. Another thing uh, that kind of led to this the waning of support and this downfall, I guess, was that at one point he ended up publishing names of certain young people, those young people that he loved, they became members. He found out that they were reading improper books. I don't know which books they were. Tony, do you know anything on that? Um, whatever they may have been. I, I took a shot with Tony. He's a book. They weren't a 
apparently they weren't he in was mind. being called out. Yeah, well, he was calling them out. He was calling them out. Um, that didn't go over very well with the congregation, not with the young people, not with their parents. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of publishing the names. On well, Leila, you're reading this novel. You know, like in the whole church knows now. So. You gotta wonder if he went through proper church discipline. Where That's you know that mm, that would be an entail a little deeper study, but I you know. To what got them to that point to publish the names, but that's not even part of church discipline. You wouldn't do that. So you would confront and, and find out what they're reading and what's going on there, encourage them not to. If they if it is you know sinful, then warn them again. If beyond that, you know, you take other measures like formal letter from the session, keep them from communion, eventually they communicate. It depends how, how far they go, how far it is, how deep it is. But that's not you know, that's like an excommunicating thing. When you excommunicate somebody from your church, that's public. You you publicly pronounce that um, excommunication. I had to do it twice. Not good. Not fun. Um, and so that is something that's out there. But to publish the names, it's almost tough. Like you're shaming them, or I don't know, man. It's not cool. I don't think it's cool. Um, eventually, the, I'm sorry. Eventually, they were disciplined, but they weren't disciplined for material that they were reading. The alleged bad books, they were disciplined for not showing proper respect to the elders. So I don't know, it just kind of seems a little shady at this point. I don't want to get down on Edwards, he was a holy man all the way through, and he loved the Lord. Uh, the church kind of cut his salary back. <laughs> they had 11 kids, man, and they needed the dough. Yeah, we, I, I, we know what that's like. We know what that's like. Um, when the church isn't doing all that they can to help sustain you and your family, it becomes very difficult. Like you kind of have to earn. Uh, we had that experience in one of our churches, the one in Kansas. They they really could have taken care of our family, and they didn't. The subsequent guy, another guy, after we were, we were leaving, they you know they were able to offer him a lot more. Huh, how's that work? How's that working? But that said, so but they kind of were cutting his um, salary, or cutting into that, and that was disappointing to him and his family, obviously. So, so things were getting, you know, it's just becoming tough. It just be, you can see this falling apart. This, this is not an unusual story. This happens, unfortunately, way too often in churches um, with, with ministers and, and congregants, especially if it's, a, if it's the congregation that owns the church that you come into that church and they're so established and you're just kind of their man, and here's what we do, and here's what we do, and we do this on Wednesday nights, and we do this on Sunday mornings, and we. And if you want to change something even just a little bit, no, 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 no. We've been doing this since 1892, so, and I heard that. <laughs> so that's, you know, um, what do you do? And, and so that, that makes it difficult, and it's almost like you're, you're there to serve them, but only insofar as they want to be served. Right? You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't have that real respect or authority. And that, it just it goes, and it goes both ways. Sometimes ministers need to earn that respect a little bit. Other times it's just you know here's what you're going to do, and we're just plugging you in. And if you don't work, we'll just plug somebody else in. You know, so there's <sighs> he preached. His preaching became unpopular. The once, you know, very popular preaching on the doctrines of grace. <clears throat> it seems like they kind of reverted back to that easier kind of preaching. Maybe you shouldn't be so hard. Maybe you shouldn't do that. 
Again, I know about this personally, at least to a degree. I, I got yelled at for preaching on the doctrines of grace at one of my churches. We already know that stuff. You should, nobody's going to come to the church if you tell them they're totally depraved and wicked. Okay. So, you know, I didn't say that like that. I said, well, I'm preaching through it. You know, it's in it's Romans, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so. But it's not necessarily popular. They began to lose members. Um, I can really relate to, I, mean, I keep relating to this. This is mostly our Kansas experience. I mean, people that were going to that church for a long, long time because I was the pastor at some point. They wanted to leave the church. That wasn't going to happen. I was going to have to go before that particular member was going to go. This one woman was going to leave the church. She was fed up with me. I was too conservative, whatever, for their taste. And um, she was a deacon. And I was just like, yeah, woman deacon. But, um, she was, good. she was threatening to leave the church. Um, not long after that, I find out that, you know, I was leaving the church. Was this the church that thought Hanson was satanic and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. That's, That's pretty, pretty awful conservative. Um, legalistic and conservative are two different yeah. things. They were legalistic. That's not necessarily conservative. If they were biblically conservative, cool. That's I am. But legalistic... And that, that's kind of the outworking of that, the legalism. It's like, here's what we do, and we've always done this, and we're not going to change come hell or high water. If it's a snowstorm, it's an ice storm, it's a tornado coming in, in the middle of Kansas, we're in Topeka, it doesn't matter. We're having that Wednesday night prayer meeting because we always have our Wednesday night prayer meeting. It doesn't matter if one person shows up. But we ended up not doing the Wednesday night prayer meeting because it just wasn't right to do. It was not legitimate at that point, the way things were going. That was... All these I'm relating to this dude, but you can see where this happens in churches like that. I think at Northampton, it was their church. He was the pastor. And when things were going well, amen, good. But when it wasn't, you know, it was like, we're going to, something has to give here. And we're not going anywhere. So guess what? <laughs> so anyway, uh, it happens. This is not anything new, unfortunately. Fruit of his grandfather's halfway uh, it is, and, 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 the, the, and the, yeah, and other things as well. Again, we're more on the liberal side of Puritanism and that kind of downgrade, you know. And that's why, man, you have to stay. You have to stay tough. You have to stay the course. You have to be faithful. If the Lord chooses to bless that, Amen. If people leave and go, you know what? You can look at the. You can say, Lord, I, I was a faithful servant. I preached it. Without being prideful, because you have to be careful about that, because, oh, I'm better than... Not like that, but just faithful to the Lord. And I think Edwards was like that. He loved that congregation, man. Even when they got rid of him, I'll read... Um, we might actually be here until 8 o'clock, because I'm talking... I'm, I'm filling in here. Okay, so let's move on. That's, those are a few things, but a big one. Uh, his preaching became unpopular. No one joined the church for four years, and uh, after that, one person did try to join the church... He was dismissed shortly after because he came to loggerheads with Edwards in this session. Uh, but the big thing that really got under the burr of the congregation was that he preached against the halfway covenant. He repudiated the halfway covenant. Finally, Edwards said, this is wrong, it's not biblical. And he preached on that. He also preached against the view that the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance. That was it. That was pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back for that congregation. That was enough, man. That's, now you're really messing with you know, the doctrine. Are you telling me, after we've been doing this for all these years, that now my kids 
Even though I'm not a professing Christian, I can't have my kids baptized in your church? No, it's not gonna, Edwards wanted to set it right. Edwards was cool, man. He was, he was biblical, he was strong. And that just, that was, that was it. That they, they, you know, um, only letting professing Christians come to the Lord's table, not using it as a converting ordinance. That was it. Um, leadership got together, voted, and they voted 10 to 9 to remove him as pastor. I mean, he did have some supporters on the session. When I was removed from Topeka, I had zero supporters. Like, see you later. They were all related to, like the uncle was, you know, the whole session was related to each other, or just about everybody. Brothers, cousins, uncles, aunts. So I was, I was totally outsider. You know, I was like the um, only non, or the first non, I guess, Scotch-Irish preacher. Oh, so from day one, they, they weren't used to me at all. And I wasn't used to them. They were cold. Like, they were different. They were just different than us. But um, you were so little, Leela. You're like, Dad, was I even, do I remember any of this? Lainey was a little kid. Oh, I got fired. They made it not like I was fired. They made, you know, it was a mutual parting. But it was bad. Oh, it was really bad. I can tell you stories. But I know, yeah, I'm telling you something. But anyway, <laughs> I can tell you more. We won't get into those. It's really tough. But, um, but basically, I was. That, that one day, again, there was a, a blizzard in Topeka, and the roads were icy. And there was the man who I was to meet with. He wasn't even on the elder board, but he was like the elder. He was the man. And I had to go to his house. And I told one of my elders, I said, man, Daryl, the roads are terrible, but we're going. We're going. I said, okay. Slip slide away to this guy's. Thankfully, Kansas is flat. Topeka's flat, so you know you're not going down Pittsburgh Hills. But went to the guy's house, and yeah, I just at that moment I realized I said I don't even know. Like this is like not like a cult, but it was like man, wow. I was brought into the room, right? Anyway, um, he uh, the church did vote, and uh, by a vote of two hundred. To 23, the congregation backed the leadership. Well, they're all related. <laughs> See you later. And that's very true. I mean, like, the, the pastors are in a tough place, you know, because you're, you're kind of the invited guest. Thankfully, with our church, we're kind of like the, I'm like the founding pastor, and so that's kind of cool. And it, it helps because I can love you guys, and you can love me in that way without like saying, okay, now maybe the next dude that comes in, if it's not Luke or Aaron, will be like, okay, here's how we do it. But right now, um, it's, it's a little different. So anyway, but it's not unprecedented, like founding pastors of churches, after a while, they're gone too, you know, it's a good congregation. It's, and we'll talk about this too. This is one of the effects of the Great Awakening, where we have gone from like the, the, the church and the and leadership parish kind of system having that to the congregation. The late it's called the um, the laity, the uh, rebellion of the laity, the takeover. I forget what it's on my notes for next week. The conquering of the laity. It's because now the laity laity kind of takes the rank. Takes the rank. Yeah. So um, what's next for him? What happened after that? Oh, let me read uh, his final farewell. Um, he wasn't a perfect pastor by any stretch. Um, but he loved his people to the end. He wanted to guide them to maturity, knowing one day that they would have to give an account. So let me see if I have that. 
here. The Chapel Library actually has a it published. Do they? Chapel Library has a but his farewell sermon. Yeah. June, June 17, 15. I mean, it's not, yeah, that's right, June 17, 15. And it wasn't, I mean, it's pretty tough. I mean, I won't read all of it, I'll read some of it. It says, to those who are professors of godliness among us, I would now call you to a serious consideration of that great day wherein you must meet him who has heretofore been your pastor, instead of speaking to Christ, before the judge whose eyes, whose eyes are as flames of fire. I have endeavored, according to my best ability, to search the word of God with regard to the distinguishing notes of true piety, those by which persons might best discover their state and most surely and clearly judge of themselves. So as he's leaving, he's saying, look, you better make sure that you're truly a Christian. I've done everything that I can. I've preached it faithfully. I've taught you faithfully. It's almost like his servant sinners in the hands of an angry God. But Yeah. Um, he said, I, I, I apply to you in the preaching of the word to the utmost of my skill and in most plain and searching manner that I've been able in order to the detecting of the, of the deceived hypocrite and establishing hope and comfort of the sincere. So he's like, if you're a hypocrite, you're, you, know, you need to find that out. Because he's worried about their soul. He loved them that much to, to be straight with them. Um, and he says, and yet tis to be feared that after all that I have done, I now leave some of you in a deceived, deluded state. <laughs> Woo! What a leaving some. He was getting his, you know, his jabs in. Uh, For tis not to be supposed that among several hundred professors, none are deceived. So like, you know, there has to be people that aren't truly saved here. Uh, henceforward, I'm like to have no more opportunity to take care in charge of your souls to examine and search them. But still I entreat you to remember and consider the rules which I have often laid down to you during my ministry with solemn regard to the future day when you and I must stand together before our judge when the uses of examination, I'm sorry, when the uses of examination you have heard from me must be rehearsed again before you. And those rules of trial must be tried, <clears throat> and it will appear, appear whether they have been good or not. And it will also appear whether you have been impartially heard, impartially heard them, and tried yourselves by them. And the judge himself, who is infallible, will try both you and me. And after this, none will be deceived concerning the state of their souls. Wow. That's, the, that's, a, that's his parting sermon to his people. We're going to stand before him. So, um, again, he did love his people to, to the very end. And he wasn't bitter. Like, when he left, it wasn't like, it wasn't like taking parting shots. It was more like an appeal to them. Just like any pastor who loves Christ and loves his flock would say, you know, look, you need Christ. So he was, he was putting that out there as he was going. He wasn't trying to be nasty or mean. He never was. He was very humble for as intelligent he was. He wasn't snobby. He wasn't insincere. He was kind of a quiet man. Sometimes when I think about him, no offense at all, Andy, he reminds me of like a little of you, like sweet, nice guy, right? And like, you know, just nice. And even like, like he would read his sermons and he didn't have 
but he was so sincere and so sweet in that way. So Edwards wasn't this... No, he wasn't. And he wasn't arrogant, even though he was so, so intelligent, so smart. He had that grace about him. So he wasn't mad when, when they got rid of him. I mean, again, I know, like I, I say these things about our, that congregation, but I'm not mad. I feel bad for them in many ways. You know what I mean? Although I, it'd be hard to go back. Well, like you saw it in a way coming, I imagine he did too. I mean, you see what's going on around you. You're yeah. involved in most. Yes. It's hard to see the direction things are going. Yes, and there's just a coldness. I mean, you can feel it. It's a real tension when it gets to this point. Those things that I've mentioned, those things that are happening, and people aren't coming to the church. You know, there's a lot going on. And, and the pastor has issues too. You know, he wasn't a perfect pastor. No pastor is perfect. Congregation does as well. But even for us, like towards the end, there were times, I guess for at least the last year before service started, we would go right directly to my office, me and my family. I would go out and say hello to some people. I'd go out and I would preach right after the sermon. My family would go right back into the office. I would say you know, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And I'd, like, it was not like it is at our church. You know, when we hang out, we're all together. It's, it was tough. You could see it coming. People making those comments. It, yeah, it, absolutely. And it's hard. It's so hard. And it's hard to, to have a relationship. You can't talk to people openly and seriously. It's just really difficult. It was like the exact opposite. For me, you know, the way it ended where I came from, it was, uh, it was that same coldness, but in reverse. Well, and that's the thing. When, when, the, when the leadership kind of has... I don't want to say the upper hand, but you could have very cold, hard, demanding leaders who don't really care about you. Like, you're just a number. You're good while you're here, and as long as you do what we want you to do, you're good. And again, I experienced that too. I was on staff at a PCA church, and this dude was intent on becoming a mega church, and so we were just a cog in that. And if you did it, right, lady? If you did what you wanted to do, then that was good. But once you're like, like wait a minute, we're not... This isn't what we were purposed to do. This isn't, okay, see you later. You're gone, right? It doesn't matter. Like, they'll use you up, and then if you get offended, a lot of preachers, and you gotta be careful and mindful of this, will be passive-aggressive from the pulpit. They might have something personally against you, and they'll preach it from, like, you know, well, today we're preaching on, you know, gossip, <laughs> like that. And, and you know that it's just like a backhanded way. I don't know, if, I'm not saying... Your pastor, you're smiling like with that Cheshire cat smile, but uh, but that's a back. Pastors do that because they were afraid to come and confront you and say, "Look, what are you doing?" So they'll preach it from, "We can't be doing this," but it's directed at you, and that's not cool, cool either. Uh, a lot, they'll lose a lot of pressure. I'm the pastor. What do you say? I said sometimes you don't even realize it. Well, I know. Well, that's well, that's good if you don't realize it, but you know. So when I preach, I do prepare, and I do certain sermons. I think of certain people, like, you know, oh, they could use this. Or I pray, Lord, that you will use this in their lives, whether to convict them or to encourage them or whatever. At times, you know, I do think specifically at people, of people at times, oh, I hope they're there on Sunday to hear this type of thing. But never, like, with, like, in a vindictive way, which pastors can and do do. So it goes both ways. And if they're powerful... You know, they're going to, or if they're intimidated and scared, they're going to do everything. Well, I'm the pastor. If somebody has to say I'm the pastor, it's already over. When you have to assert, like, you know, your authority and let people know, it's over by that point. You know, when you have to pull rank in that way. 
So yeah, and um, so you have to be careful on both sides. But Edwards wasn't like that. Edwards was sincere. He just did what he, he served the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the best way to serve your people, is that you're serving. I don't do it for you guys. We do it for Christ, and you get the residual of that. So if you come or go, you know, that's, it's, we're called to be faithful to him, right? And to love you with his love. Edwards did that, for sure. Um, so what was next for Edwards? He, um, he wasn't high demand, even though he got gotten fired from his congregation. There were several other congregations that wanted to hire him to bring him on as his pastor. A couple, um, there was one in Scotland that, that called him, and another one in Virginia, but he, he did not take those calls. You know what he did? It was really cool. In 1751, he went out to pastor a church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Now, at this time, Stockbridge was like the frontier, the boonies. Nobody was out there. It was like the way... So he went from like the, the penthouse to the outhouse, right? That was kind of the analogy there, right? Northampton, everybody, classy, it's, you know, the, the church to be at. Now he's out in the prairie, you know. He's out in the, in the frontier, and he was ministering to hunters and gatherers and farmers and missionary to Indians. And you know what? He liked it. He did find much joy in that because he was ministering and he found contentment. You would think that he would be bummed, but he wasn't. Um, they also gave him time to write and he wrote some of his most important books and works that were produced. Uh, Freedom of the Will was produced in 1754 while he was out there ministering in that way. So, um, it was a lot harder for him and his family, but again, he always had a supporting, loving, um, right beside him wife. They were in this together. She knew how sincere he was, and so the contentment wasn't based on having you know, this church or this calling. It was based on faithfulness to Christ. And when you have that, then you can get through anything. So their marriage stayed strong. Um, because that's a, it's another thing, another pitfall in the ministry is so hard, especially on, on, on the spouse, you know, to see her husband going through tough stuff. Um, it's, it's not easy. You know, the expectations on the, on the pastor's wife, it's not easy. And it, it can really mess with your marriage. Um, February uh, 1758, he, uh, he, he, he was there, I think, from, what, what did I say, 51 to 58, so those years he was in the wilderness or out on the prairie. Um, February 58, he was installed as president of College of New Jersey. What did that turn out to be? Princeton. That's right. It turned out to be Princeton. Why did we need Princeton? Because you're so much hungry. Let's go on to the next. Let's start something else. And that's what we did too. You know what? That's why people say, oh, you have so many splits in your denominations. I'm going to turn churches. You know what? People go liberal. There's always a remnant to say, wait, we're not going to go there. So that, that, and we'll talk about that as we get into our, because say you have a million and one denominations. Well, you know, you have these Methodists, those Methodists, those Methodists. Well, because they were liberal. You have the, the PCUSA. What came out of the PCUSA? PCA. PCA. That's R.C. Sproul and, and Gerstner. And, and I guess the late 60s, early 70s, more or less early 70s, I think the PCA started. They had enough. They couldn't stay in the PCUSA because they were so liberal. So we're going to go and we're going to be conservative and Calvinistic. Now what's happening in the PCA right now today? Revoice. Revoice. Downgrade. And they're not saying it as much, but also CRT is coming in a lot. Now the whole gospel coalition thing is 
nine marks, all those PCA. I was in the PCA. You could see it going down when I was in it for a brief time. Um, so, yeah. So, again, so something's going to come out of that. That's the way it goes. And it should be like that. Because we live in a fallen world, and if you go liberal, we're not going to get caught up in that. We're not going to go along with the status quo like so many people do, because it's easy. You know what? We're going to we're going to seek to be faithful. Right? That's what you do. So um, he was installed in, it, it, it was at that time, the College of New Jersey, later to be known as Princeton. Now, shortly after he accepted that position, um, he was inoculated and we could, he, took the, he took the vax. <laughs> he, was, he was way into being vaxxed. Now, uh, well, you know what? Um, it was for smallpox. And again, at that time, it was just coming up and experimental and all that stuff. Um, shortly after he was vaxxed, he, he contracted a fever infection from which he died. So he was installed February 1758 and he died March 22nd. Ooh, Leela, close. Um, March 22nd, 1758. So that, it came, his, his life came to kind of, you know, that abrupt end. Um, he was like, how old would he have been, like my age? Almost 55. Almost 55. So he was a young, you know, relatively young man in that way. Um, his final words, written to his daughter Lucy, one of his daughters. And Lucy. <laughs> Let's see. Check this out. He says this. Again, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's sad, but he's, he's still kind of just firm on the way. He says, Dear Lucy, <clears throat> it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife. Oh, he loved her to the end. And tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she'll be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. Oh, I'm about to cry. I can't. <clears throat> and as to my children, you are now left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail. Oh, so cool. I love Jonathan Edwards for that. He was just a, 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 a sweet human. Um, again, he was considered by many to be America's greatest theologian. R.C. Sproul, I think, would, would love Gerstner. Those guys loved him. He was deep. He was profound. Um, we're not going to get into this tonight at all. This is more theological. At times, he did take different approaches to certain doctrines, like even some of the doctrines of grace. He got around to being orthodox. He never was, it was never heterodox or unorthodox, but just different ways of kind of expressing certain things. Um, for me, I'm like, I listen to Robert Godfrey's church historian. Do, he, um, he kind of feels the same way, that, that Edwards, as profound and deep as he was, could be confusing at times, technical at times, hard to read at times. Maybe it's just that level of intelligence. I'm just not that clever. I'm smart in that way. And, you know, um, like Godfrey said, he's, sometimes reading Edwards could be tedious. 
because he was so detailed in different ways. Yeah, not recommend to a brand new release. No, 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 no. I mean, I have, I have freedom um, of the will. I can't, I've never gotten through that. I just can't. Um, but, like Godfrey said, John Calvin is, is, is someone who's much easier to read and to understand, not as unambiguous as... as uh, he was considered a cerebral... He was. He was very cerebral. And there's people that love that and gain so much from that. Even in seminary, I just, I never, I mean, Calvin is good to read. He's not too, but he's very readable and you can understand even though there's depth to him. You might have to read and read again. Edwards, I could read 20 times again and just thought, what is he saying? What is he getting at? But he would get there. So, um, yeah, I, like Gottfried said, read Calvin. <laughs> I would say the same thing, because you're getting even, you know, Calvin is, he was still, for as unique as Edwards could be, he was still derivative, like from Calvin, in that way. But anyway, um, some of his writings, just real quick as we add, we are going to do our time here. Um, prolific in his output, of course, in 1741, it was his famous sermon that he preached, everybody knows him for this. And so Edwards gets that. Like, he was kind of the last of the Puritans, uh, considered that way. Was that? That was a guest speaking Yeah, well, he preached that He preached that sermon in his own congregation, and guess what? They didn't like it. <laughs> they weren't too happy. And that was another thing. Uh, his poor wife got sad, like, during the period when it wasn't going so well, because they would have guest preachers, because he would be out. And those guest preachers would be received so well. So there's his wife, you know, seeing all these preachers being like hailed and adored, and her own husband just like not. Oh, that's so hard. Oh, um, but he did preach at another congregation, and that's what really had that impact, that effect. And it's just, you know, it's a sermon that appealed to sinners to recognize that they will be judged by God, and that judgment will be more fearful and painful than they can begin to comprehend. You know, pull any punches. Uh, quote, corrupt sinners face a fearful judgment, he said. Salvation through faith in Christ was the only remedy to this. Yeah, you can read that sermon. It's published. You can listen. Go to YouTube. Uh, they have people that read it. They have some dramatic readings of it. You can, all kinds of things. But that is, his, and that's, it's kind of ironic because he was very gentle and a sweet man, but he kind of leaves that impression of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Ah, you know, that kind of thing. But, he didn't preach fire and brimstone all the time. Mom, yeah. Mom. Well, I heard yeah, it would be like this. Like, uh, a treatise concerning the religious affections, you know. But he, this Lord still used that because the content was there. It was faithful. Um, so that's, that's, that's one. Um, a treatise concerning religious affections, another famous writing from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and the idea behind that is true Christianity is not revealed by the, the quantity or intensity of religious emotions. Kind of a little bit of backlash, like true, legit emotion that the Holy Spirit wrought is good, but not emotionalism, you know, in the church. Like, there's a difference if you're singing a hymn and you start to cry and weep because you're convicted or just so beautiful, as opposed to coming in and I'm firing you up to get, you know, to, to kind of get you moving. The big difference theologically in that. Um, so it's not that he was against emotion, but he said it's, it's not the, the intensity of religious emotion, but it's rather present where a heart has been changed to love God and to seek his pleasure. 
His pleasure alone, God's pleasure, to do His will in that way. Of course, freedom of the will, uh, reform perspective on the nature of the will. This is another one of those areas, and R.C. really picks up on this and loves this, that the will is expressed by the strongest desire and motive. So if you listen to R.C., he'll talk about that. Like even the seat you're sitting in tonight, you're doing that uh, kind of according to your, your strongest desire at that time of your will and where you want to be. So R.C., he gives that... Um, your wallet of your life, right? That's like a Jack Benny like from way back in the day. Like Robert comes up, your wallet of your life, and then the dude says, can I think about it? <laughs> you know? But at that moment, what are you going to be more desired like, to do? Like you probably just give your wallet over. Some people might not. Whatever your desire, your deepest desire, your deepest motivation is, that's where you're going to act in every area. Again, Edwards gets very, very deep and technical on this. But it's kind of that, that person's character. The point of all that is that, for Edwards, it says, a sinful human nature cannot desire to truly please God unless God first changes that sinner's disposition. Then is our, our, bond, our wills in bondage. He could have said it like Luther, the bondage of the will. But he gets kind of deep and he starts talking about the um, psychological, not really, but you know, kind of to that heart, like we're gonna act according to our deepest desires. None of us have that desire to serve and to love God apart from Christ. That's kind of the point of it. But it, you know, it's this thick of a book and you know, small writing, but it's, it's good. Uh, Charity and Its Fruits, another book. Um, the End for Which God Created the World, another book. Printed sermons, the collections are out there. You can, you can really get a hold and listen to them anytime. But anyway, that is uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, um, I think it's a nice like an overview of his life and, and his ministry. Next time when we come, we will talk about uh, Edwards and Whitfield, the tenant, Gilbert Tennant, um, others who were involved in the Great Awakening, the context of the Great Awakening, um, the Awakening itself, the events that took place, the um, results of that, the consequences of it, good and bad. Because like with the Awakening, again, it's, it's called... Something of the lady, when the lady kind of takes over. And there, there's, there's a concern about, you know, the, the, the pattern of the church. You know, what is church to be like, you know? Is it, are we to be here or is it about revivals? Or is it about going there? What happens next after you hear the revival and you're converted? Do you go to church? How do you do that? No, many churches did start. So we'll look at all that um, next time and then we'll go on a long break. <laughs>